Thank you, Chris. Well, it's great to be with you this evening. This is my first trip to South Dakota in some 18 or 19 years, and it's a little bit of a homecoming of sorts, maybe one generation removed, in that my, both of my parents are from South Dakota, and uh, then they, after marrying, they moved to Montana, where I was raised. And um, so it's great to be back here and to see some relatives I haven't seen for nearly 20 years. It's a real pleasure. One of the questions that I get, and it's a very understandable question, is why would I bother to co-author a book, 300 pages plus, with 555 footnotes, for those of you who love footnotes. <laughs> why would I co-author a book critiquing a novel, a work of fiction? And I think it's a very good question, so I want to start out by giving you two or three answers to that. And the first answer that I have is, of course, I wanted to become wealthy. <laughs> and um, I think that's a, a legitimate uh, you know, enterprise. I want to be upfront about that. The second is that, although not a lifelong dream, I had often thought it'd be interesting to maybe one day go on Geraldo. <laughs> <clears throat> and although I didn't get to actually be in the same room as Mr. Rivera, I actually was on his show, uh, Geraldo at Large on Fox about a year and a half ago. And I live in Eugene, Oregon, and I had to drive two hours up to Portland, Oregon, sit in a studio for about an hour, and then they hooked us up via satellite to Geraldo. And I was able to converse with him for exactly 52 seconds. <laughs> uh, such are the joys of, of television. A third reason is that, of course, when you write a book or you write an article, or you do anything that you think is worthy of any kind of attention, uh, you like to hear feedback from people. You like to hear what people think about what you have to say. And I want to read for you a couple of emails that I received about our book, The Da Vinci Hoax, to give you a sense of the kind of love, the kind of warmth that's out there from some of the fans of The Da Vinci Code who, upon seeing our book, have had a certain reaction. For instance, this, quote, after reading your website and The Da Vinci Code, I have come to several conclusions. This is the first book you have ever read on this subject not written by the church. You believe everything you are told. You are a blind religious fanatic. I have read several books corroborating Brown's facts. Just because you haven't doesn't mean they don't exist. Anyway, it really blew my mind how exploitive and myopic religious zealots can be. Very interesting email because uh, as my co-author Sandra Measel explain to this particular writer. Sandra, uh, and I like to talk about Sandra because she's a very interesting lady. Uh, she has two degrees, uh, master's degrees, one in medieval history and one in biochemistry. And they're both earned at that Catholic bastion of orthodoxy, the University of Illinois. <laughs> she pointed out to this particular reader that of the 50 books that she put in our selected bibliography, 49 of them were written by non-Christians, not just non-Catholics, but non-Christians. And whereas many of the topics I wrote about required referring to more works by Christians and Catholics, the fact is, is that most of the sources we use in our book come from non-Christian sources. The second email I want to share with you is probably my personal favorite and has been for a few months now. And this is one that I think you really will enjoy because it, again, shows the kind of, of warmth that this kind of discussion has generated certain kind of warmth. Quote, you self-righteous Catholic freaks. <laughs> See, already you, you get the sense, the flavor. <laughs> Are going to try and debunk a book that lets the world know the true nature of your religion. 
Of course, you know that your religion and Christianity in general is responsible for more deaths than both world wars put together, and the suppression of knowledge that could have advanced our civilization tenfold. And no, I won't burn in hell, for hell is a figment of your imagination and another tool for the church to control people. Boy, you people sicken me. Now, I've also received many other emails, probably three or four dozen emails over the course of the last couple years that are negative in tone. And one thing that interests me is how people will start out by saying things like, hey, it's just fiction, you moron. It's just fiction. Get over it. And then they spend two or three or four paragraphs explaining why it's still true. And then they conclude by saying, of course, it's just fiction, so what's your problem with it? I think that gets to the heart of the cognitive dissonance that seems to go on with people who are some people who are fans of the Da Vinci Code. Obviously, there are millions of readers of the Da Vinci Code who do not take that approach. But this gets to a question I want to address. And what I want to do is I want to address the central question, and then I want to talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding the Da Vinci Code. And then the heart of my talk, which comes in hour number three, is <laughs> I look at f some five or six of the specific claims made within the Da Vinci Code and go through those and give, a, give you a sense of how the research, the supposed vaunted research of the Da Vinci Code is sorely lacking. And then I'm going to conclude with a few thoughts of why I think the Da Vinci Code has been so remarkably successful. Some 40 million copies sold worldwide, as you know, being made into a major motion picture starring Tom Hanks, directed by Opie, also known as Ron Howard. <laughs> so coming out on May 19th, in case you want to do something else that evening. <laughs> the number one question, and actually Father kind of touched on it in his introduction, the number one question or comment I receive is, why? bother with a work of fiction. This is just a novel. And I want to suggest to you very strongly that this is not a very good Christian approach to fiction, even if it's poorly written popular fiction. That there is, in other words, no such thing as just fiction, or just a television program, or just a movie. In fact, speaking of just a movie, we all recall some of the controversy surrounding Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Now, it wasn't much of a response to say to people, hey, it's just a movie. The fact is, people brought up criticisms, I think criticisms that were very suspect and invalid, but saying that it's just a movie is not a good enough response. And I think that saying just, it's just a novel is not a good response to the issue of the Da Vinci Code for three or four reasons that I want to touch on very quickly here. First is the obvious one that many, many readers of the Da Vinci Code clearly take it seriously as far more than a work of fiction, as far more than just a good story. In fact, many readers take it as a sort of catechism, a guide to history, to theology, to artwork, to Paris, to London. You see television specials, ABC, NBC, National Geographic, the History Channel, several others have come out. Not all of them have been positive, some have been fairly critical, but a couple of them, most notably the ABC special back in November 2003, was almost what I would call an infomercial. Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, sits there in his tweet professorial jacket and is asked these kind of fluffy questions by Elizabeth Vargas, a Catholic, by the way, who asks some questions like, well, what about Leonardo da Vinci? And Dan Brown replies, well, Leonardo had the misfortune of being an extremely modern man born into a time of great superstition. Vargas doesn't even blink, apparently unaware that the Renaissance is not really known as a time of great superstition, because it wasn't. You have pilgrimages. Perhaps you've heard of some of these Da Vinci Code pilgrimages or tours where people go over to Europe and go to France and, and Italy and England and, and visit some of the sites talked about. In the Da Vinci Code, 
There are some three dozen books that I've counted that have spun off of The Da Vinci Code that talk about aspects of the novel in a very positive light. The Templar Knights, the supposed marriage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, some of these other issues. And here's a quote from an Amazon.com reviewer, uh, a lady who actually is said to be one of the top 100 reviewers for Amazon.com, meaning she's written probably hundreds of reviews for that website, which of course is one of the most popular websites out there. And I think that this, these comments by her touch on some of the reasons why many fans are enamored with The Da Vinci Code. She writes this, once I began this extraordinary book, I could not put it down. The Da Vinci Code is much more than a gripping suspense thriller. Dan Brown takes us beyond the main plot and leads us on a quest for the Holy Grail. A grail totally unlike anything we have been taught to believe. With his impeccable research, Mr. Brown introduces us to aspects and interpretations of Western history and Christianity that I, for one, have never known existed or even thought about. I found myself unwillingly leaving the novel and time and time again going online on the internet to research Brown's research, only to find a new world of historic possibilities opening up for me. And my quest for knowledge and the answers to questions that the book poses paralleled, in a sense, the quest of the book's main characters. I think in this quote, she summarizes many of the things that so many fans have found enticing about the Da Vinci Code, the sense that you are learning so much about so many fascinating topics, early church history, Jesus Christ, artwork, architecture, secret societies, and so forth. A second reason I think that we can't say this is just fiction is that when people talk about the Da Vinci Code, and you've probably had conversations or have overheard conversations about the book, when they talk about the Da Vinci Code, do they talk about the great characters, the great plot, the great writing? No, because those things really don't exist if we're being honest about the literary merits of this work, which I think are very poor. People talk about the historical and theological claims. 99% of the time, if you go online, if you talk to folks who are, really love the novel, they're obsessed with the historical claims, not with Robert Langdon, one of the main characters, not with the plot, but with what it says about history, about various figures in history. Uh, Dan Bernstein is the editor of a book called Secrets of the Code, an unauthorized guide to the mysteries beyond the Da Vinci Code, which has sold some half million copies. And it's basically a series of essays by people talking about aspects of the Da Vinci Code. And he said, and this, he's a, a Wall Street day trader, a very accomplished entrepreneur. He writes in his foreword to this book, I was as intellectually challenged by reading the Da Vinci Code as I had been by any book I'd read in a long time. A pretty strong statement. And then he, he says this, is which is rather humorous. Say what you will about some of the ham-fisted dialogue and improbable plot elements, Dan Brown has wrapped large, complex ideas, as well as small details and fragments of intriguing thoughts into his action-adventure murder mystery. He, again, I think gets to the heart of some of the interest in this, uh, in this novel. And third, Dan Brown himself, the author, thinks it's far more than fiction. And I think I want, to, I want to really emphasize this because many people say to me, well, yeah, but Dan Brown has, has said that it's fiction all along. Has he? That surprises me because I've never heard him emphasize that this is just fiction, don't take it seriously, because he's actually said this, the opposite in many different ways. For instance, in a June 9th, 2003 interview on the Today Show, Matt Lauer said to Dan Brown, you ask the reader to challenge certain long-held beliefs or truths about religion. And Dan Brown says, yes, I do. And then he went on to say that while some readers have found the Da Vinci Code to be a little bit shocking, 
He said that the majority of readers love it, and he says that many clergy members and religious, including nuns, think it's a fantastic book. I've not yet met any of those nuns, by the way, but perhaps they're out there. In a talk in New Hampshire given last year, one of the few public appearances that he's given uh, in the last couple of years, Dan Brown said, I was not born with a luxury of absolute or certainty or absolute faith. I have a lot of questions and I've written a novel in which fictional characters ask some of those questions and offer possible answers. And then I think this is really the strongest statement by him given in 2004 for National Geographic documentary. He said, I began as a skeptic, but as I started researching the Da Vinci Code, I really thought I would disprove a lot of this theory about Mary Magdalene and Jesus Christ and the Holy Blood line and, and so forth. But I became a believer. I became a believer. That's from Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code. And he has never backed away from those comments. He's never stepped away from those. So I think it, it uh, challenges us to take a little deeper look at the nature of this novel. Now how many, and don't be afraid, because uh, there will be a chance for confession later, but how many have read the novel? So probably about a third or, or so. I find that you know, some 25 to, to 50% of folks that I speak to have read the novel. And so since many of you have not, let me give a quick overview of what the book is, the novel is about, although you've probably heard uh, it's hard not to hear something about it. Essentially, it's a murder mystery that begins in the Louvre and it takes place over 24 hours and culminates with the main character, Robert Langdon, supposedly discovering the burial site of Mary Magdalene and in doing so having some kind of ecstatic religious experience at that site. And so Robert Langdon, a Harvard professor and a young French detective named Sophie, go on to investigate this murder that takes place in the famous French Museum. And in the course of this, they become caught up with a historian, Leigh Teabing, who is obsessed with the Holy Grail. And in the middle of this novel, about halfway through, there's a, about a 100-page section that my co-author and I describe as the lecture, where these two men basically tell Sophie the truth about all sorts of things, Jesus and Mary Magdalene, etc. And some of the things that they talk about include not only Jesus and Mary Magdalene supposedly being married and having children, but that this secret has been protected by a couple of societies, secret societies, especially the Priory of Zion, for some 1,000 years. And that the Catholic Church in particular has sought to keep this suppressed through coercion, through violence, through murder. And that Jesus was, while on one hand was a mere mortal prophet who was not divine at all, was not God, was not supernatural, he was really the first proto-feminist who wanted to free women from cultural slavery. But unfortunately, those nasty men, the apostles, stole his idea of the church, and continued to repress women for another 2,000 years up to our present day. It is stated that no one, not even the followers of Jesus, believed that Jesus was divine until the year A.D. 325 in the Council of Nicaea, that nobody had this notion until that time, and that, in fact, all major Christian beliefs about Jesus regarding his birth, his life, his teachings, his death and resurrection, as taught by the Catholic Church and by other Christians, are stolen from other pagan, from pagan religions. That there's nothing unique, there's nothing true in the story of Jesus. It's stated that the so-called Gnostic Gospels, which you've probably heard about, the Gospel of Thomas and others, are more historically accurate and present us with a much more human, believable Jesus than the Jesus we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels that we as Christians uh, believe in. 
It said that the Emperor Constantine, who lived in the fourth century, is the one who actually created and edited and produced the New Testament that we have today. And that the Catholic Church launched a vicious smear campaign against Mary Magdalene and tried to destroy her reputation, eradicate her memory, outlaw her name. And then, of course, there are claims about Leonardo da Vinci, hence the title of the, of the novel. And it said that Leonardo da Vinci was a flamboyant homosexual who was the grandmaster of a secret society, the Priory of Zion, and that he left interesting and intriguing clues in his paintings, especially The Last Supper, about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And then throughout the novel, and especially towards the end, readers are continually reminded that the Catholic Church in particular, but Christianity in general, has duped millions, if not billions, of people over time and has made them buy into a dogmatic, narrow-minded, woman-hating, vicious, bloody religion that really is outdated, that needs to go away. And so Dan Brown says we need to embrace a more inclusive, open religion in which we worship goddesses and embrace what he calls the sacred feminine. Now, it's interesting that Dan Brown is currently in, on trial uh, in London uh, being charged with plagiarism by authors of a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, one of his main sources, although he's saying it's not one of his sources, although it's obvious, I think, that it is, although whether it constitutes plagiarism or not, I'll have to leave up to a judge. But Dan Brown came out and he said, I am a committed Christian. I would never do anything to write anything to offend Christians. And he said on his website, I'm a Christian, although not of the traditional sort, apparently meaning he's a Christian who doesn't believe in Christ. Um, <laughs> And unfortunately, there are many Christians who don't believe in Christ, speaking fairly seriously. So what is the truth behind these claims? And why would he write these various, uh, various things in his book? Well, I've given you some quotes from Dan Brown. I want to give you a couple of quotes from reviews to give you a sense, again, of how people have embraced this. And then I want to look at some of these claims that I've talked about here. Because I, I enjoy some, re, reading some of these reviews and how they emphasize the intellectual nature, supposedly, of the Da Vinci Code. For instance, the Louisville Voice Tribune, in a review, said that readers with advanced degrees in comparative religion, European history, symbology, art, and cryptology will have a grand old time with Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. I would point out that readers with degrees in symbology will not have a good time with The Da Vinci Code simply because they don't exist. There are no advanced degrees in symbology since symbology is not an actual academic discipline. A small detail perhaps, but I thought it'd be worth sharing. <laughs> Reviewofbooks.com says that the Da Vinci Code is a mystery that challenges our intelligence, although it's not clear whose intelligence is being referred to here. And then in the Chicago Tribune, perhaps my favorite, it says that the, the Da Vinci Code, a 450-page novel, transmits several doctorates worth of fascinating history and learned speculation. So those of you who have worked for advanced degrees, you've wasted your time. You could have read a novel and had several doctorates worth. Now whether that would have actually been uh, gotten you a good, a good employment or been worth much out in the world of uh, the real world, I don't know. But it's fascinating these strong statements that are made about uh, the Da Vinci Code and its acclaimed research. And so with that, I want to go to the main part of my talk, which is, what about some of these specific claims? How much research actually, actually went into this book? What are some of the details that we can pull out and, and glean some 
some information about. I want to address the first, for the first claim, the statement that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Because even if you've not read the novel, you've heard this claim, right? It's just repeated again and again. When ABC and NBC both did their, their um, respective infomercials for the Da Vinci Code, this is the thing they fixated on. Almost the entire hour is spent on were Jesus and Mary Magdalene married? Now, both of those shows had to admit, although they didn't like to admit it very openly, that they found that there was one big problem with the claim that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. A significant problem. There is no evidence for it. Now, granted, I'm not a lawyer, but I find this to be a rather significant problem. So where does this idea come from? Where does this notion that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married come from? Well, it is taken in large part, and the Da Vinci Code uh, elaborates on this, from a so-called, the so-called Gnostic Gospel of Philip, which is not a gospel and was not written by Philip, just to be clear. It's actually a Gnostic text written some 200 years or 250 years after Christ was on earth, and I'll talk about Gnosticism in a second. But the quote that is taken and is, it, uh, occurs in the Da Vinci Code is this. The companion of Mary Magdalene, Jesus, loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on the mouth, and the rest of the disciples were angered by this. And they said to him, why do you love her more than us? And the claim is made, in, especially in books by Margaret Starbird, uh, who Dan Brown draws upon here. In fact, he even mentions her books in his novel. And, and Starbird is a former Catholic catechist who, after reading the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail, whose authors are suing Dan Brown for plagiarism, after reading that, she actually left the Catholic Church and became what we might call a radical feminist. She really does hate the church because she thinks it's all about male power and about denigrating women. And so she has made this argument, and she's appeared on a number of these shows saying, this proves, this Gospel of Philip written some 200, 250 years after Christ, proves that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were married. In fact, it's interesting that it proves perhaps actually the total opposite of that. Because when we study what Gnosticism is, we understand that Gnosticism has no interest in marriage or procreation or children. Gnosticism was a general heretical movement that originated in the middle of the second century. There's a lot of speculation about how it exactly came into being. But there are two specific things that Gnostics held to, even if they differed on a lot of details. And the first is that the material earthly realm is evil, was created by an evil god, the God, by the way, that Christians worship as God and the Jews worship as God. The true God is actually beyond that God. Gnosticism actually posits a kind of polytheism, multiple gods. And that the, the goal of life, of salvation, is to leave this earthly realm and attain spiritual enlightenment, to flee from the confines of this world and achieve some kind of spiritual freedom. If you remember a few years ago in San Diego, there was the uh, suicides committed by the Heaven's Gate uh, cult. Some 19 people killed themselves. And in their literature, they talked about freeing themselves from their vessels, their bodies, and ascending to spiritual enlightenment. And they threw in the UFOs, you know, for good measure, kind of a nice 20th century twist. And of course, that was a tragic event, but it highlights the fact that Gnosticism is still alive in various forms today and can take very dangerous forms as well. So the material realm is evil, spiritual realm is good. The second aspect of Gnosticism is gnosis. 
a Greek word that means secret knowledge or hidden knowledge. Knowledge that's only given to a few elite people because the Gnostics said that only a small number of people actually have the ability, the intelligence, to warrant the ability to save themselves by, again, fleeing the material realm and attaining spiritual enlightenment. In the second apocalypse of James, which is the best-selling sequel to the first apocalypse of James, I'm sure you've read both of them, another Gnostic text written some 200 years after the, the, the New Testament, the Gnostic Jesus approaches James, kisses him on the lips, and exclaims, my beloved. Now, first of all, please don't tell Dan Brown about this passage, okay? I don't want to see the novel written about this. We've already gone through some interesting things with the Academy Awards. We don't need any more of it. So what, what is going on here? Well, many scholars say that in Gnosticism, what you have with a kiss is actually a symbol of the transference, the giving, the gift of the gnosis from the teacher to the disciple. The Gnostic Jesus is already enlightened. He is already spiritually whole. He is freed from the material physical realm. In other words, he's not married. He doesn't have children because that ties you down. You don't want to have those things if you're a Gnostic. You want to escape from those things. The Gnostic Jesus has already realized enlightenment. He is giving this enlightenment to a few special others. And in the Gospel of Philip, apparently it's given to Mary Magdalene. And in the second apocalypse of James, it's given to James. Through the symbolism of the kiss, there is no romantic relationship. There is no marital relationship here at all. It is strictly one of teacher to disciple. This kind of uh, scholarship which is found in many books, and we talk about it in our book, is completely ignored by people like Margaret Starbird because they have an agenda. They're not interested in the scholarship. They're interested in saying, hey, Jesus was married, and from that flow all sorts of theological consequences. Christianity, of course, celebrates marriage as a sacrament, as a wonderful thing. The point is that Jesus was married, and he is married, and he's married to the church his bride. We know this from St. Paul, Ephesians 5, who uses this great analogy to explain the kind of intimacy that Christ the head has with his body, the church. If you start to break down that, undermine that theology, all sorts of consequences follow. We can't get into that, but we talk about it in our book a little bit. The second claim I want to look at is the one that I think is the most egregious and the most outrightly, blatantly wrong and false. And that is the claim that no one, not even the followers of Jesus, believed that he was divine until A.D. 325 when he was supposedly divinized or made into God by the Emperor Constantine. Of course, this isn't ever really mentioned in any of these, these television programs because about three minutes of research will show you how false this is. And one thing that can be used to show how false it is is this thing called the Bible, including the Gospels. Now, even if a person is not a believer, the fact is, is that there are, no, there are really no scholars today who doubt that the, the Gospels weren't written by at least the year 100 or so, 100 AD, and that it's clear that these documents profess that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is somehow divine, that he has a unique relationship with the Father. We see this, for instance, in the prologue to John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a mere Jewish prophet. No, wait, sorry. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what it says. Then it goes on to say that the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And then later in John's Gospel, in, in the 8th uh, chapter, 
Jesus makes the astounding claim to some of the Jewish religious leaders, before Abraham was, I am. Which was a very distinctly Jewish way of saying, before Abraham was, I existed, and I have always existed because I am God. Which is why they tried to kill him. St. Paul, St. Peter, all these other writers of the New Testament give consistent affirmation to the fact that they believe that Jesus was God. We see it in the church fathers. And you see a, a wonderful consistency from the first century up until the time of the Council of Nicaea in the development of understanding what it means to say that Jesus is the Son of God, that the Son and the Father are one, that they have a unique relationship. And then later the church would clarify and, more, and formally define more clearly the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Council of Constantinople in 381. So the evidence against this claim is so overwhelming, uh, it's, not even, it's not even funny. And it's interesting to me that the Da Vinci Code, 450 pages long or so, which is supposedly all about, or largely about Jesus and Mary Magdalene and the Bible and the formation of the Bible, that it quotes the Bible only zero times. Never quotes from the Bible. It has two quotes from Gnostic texts, I'm not even sure that Dan Brown has actually really studied the Bible. It's almost like he's playing a joke here on people, and sadly, many of them are falling for it. Well, how about the claim that the Gnostic Gospels present us with a much more believable, uh, human, authentic, flesh-and-blood Jesus? I've actually heard more than once Catholics say, and this is uh, not only on the Internet, I actually had a Catholic lady say this to me at a, a talk. She said, I like the Da Vinci Code because the Jesus that's presented is so human, I could believe in him. I said, well, there's a couple of problems. First of all, the Da Vinci Code really doesn't say that much about Jesus. It says that he was a mere Jewish prophet who really wasn't God. He married Mary Magdalene. They had children, and that's it. How does this make him more human? On top of that, the Da Vinci Code doesn't give us a Jesus who's more human. It gives us a Jesus who is only human, who is not God. And the fact is, if Jesus was only human and not God, you might as well just play golf on Sunday, after, Sunday mornings and forget about the nonsense of Christianity. It's that simple. Either Jesus was man and God, both, or he's not. And if he's not, Christianity is a farce, is a lie, is a joke. There really is no in-between. I don't know how many of you have read any of the Gnostic Gospels. One of the most famous, as I mentioned, is the uh, Gospel of Thomas. If you read some of the Gnostic Gospels, what you begin to see is that the Gnostic Jesus is not believable. He's not more human. In fact, he's more like a ghost who appears. He pontificates sometimes in ways that we can't even comprehend, in nonsensical blatherings. Again, I'm talking about the Gnostic Jesus. And then he disappears. The Jesus that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I think is captured, part of it is, is captured very wonderfully in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, is a Jesus who suffers, who weeps, who hurts, who feels the pain of others, who feels pain inflicted upon himself, who loves, who is authentically, completely human, as the church has always taught. Completely human, completely divine, the incarnate word. Again, I wonder if Dan Brown is playing some kind of joke here. If he's wondering, if he's thinking that people aren't even going to go out and read the Bible or read the Gnostic texts, hopefully many of them will and see how completely upside down and backwards he has the truth of the matter. The fourth claim I want to look at, and because this, a lot of people are fascinated with the question of Mary Magdalene, 
Did the Catholic Church and the dreaded, dark, violent Vatican, which has existed for thousands and thousands of years, well, actually, it's only existed since the 11th century, but for the sake of drama, thousands of years, has it, did it launch a smear campaign against Mary Magdalene? Did it try to eradicate her memory, destroy her reputation by naming her a prostitute, trying to get rid of all references of her in the New Testament, as the Da Vinci Code claims? Well, if the church attempted to get rid of all references to Mary Magdalene in the Bible, the church did an absolutely horrible, pathetic job. Because Mary Magdalene is not only mentioned in the Gospels once, twice, four times, six times, eight times, but 12 times. That's 10 more times, by the way, than Bartholomew and Thaddeus, two of the apostles, are mentioned by name, to give you some context. So what's, what does the church have against Thaddeus and Bartholomew? That's the real mystery. I mean, they're apostles for crying out loud. As you probably know, and I hope you do know, the Gospels present Mary Magdalene as a sinner who converts, who follows Christ, and is the first person, not the first woman, but the first person to see the resurrected Christ, to talk to the resurrected Christ, to touch the resurrected Christ. To give you a sense of how important that is, consider that in the ancient Jewish culture, the testimony of a woman was considered to be very poor, if worthy of any kind of recognition at all. It was given very little power or authority in a court of law. Yet the church says, Mary Magdalene, a woman, saw Christ. She saw that he was risen. She touched him. She talked to him. And we believe her account. We believe her testimony. The church, in fact, completely contrary to what the Da Vinci Code says, has always presented Mary Magdalene as an exemplar of discipleship, of being steadfast in the face of the darkest gloom, especially at the foot of the cross. As I'm sure you know, all of the male apostles, except with the exception of the apostle John, did not come to the crucifixion of Christ. But Mary, the mother of God, and Mary Magdalene were there at the foot of the cross. So it's said that in the Da Vinci Code that the, and this is the actual phrase used, that a new Vatican power base was established by Constantine in the 300s, and that part of its job was to get rid of Mary Magdalene, her memory, her reputation. Uh, again, the problem is that the Vatican didn't exist till the 1100s, but, you know, what's a few hundred years among friends? Um, <laughs> it was actually basically a swamp until they drained it and built the many uh, buildings that are there now known as the Vatican. So not only is Mary Magdalene presented in the Gospels in a very positive light, she was one of the most popular saints of the medieval era. In fact, next to Mary, the mother of God, Mary Magdalene probably has the most churches named after her in the medieval era, that roughly 1,000-year uh, period of time from about 1400, uh, 400 to 1,400, somewhere in there. So what happened? Why this idea that she's a prostitute and the church wants to get rid of her? The short story is that in 591, Pope Gregory the Great, who Gregorian chant is named after, was giving a homily in Rome. And in this homily, he was referring to Luke 7 and 8, where three different women are talked about. But he took these three women and essentially created one woman out of them as a way of making a point. He was not presenting a... Uh, some kind of dogmatic statement as a pope, and he was not speaking as a scripture scholar. He was speaking as a pastor. 
And what he was saying was that Mary Magdalene, who he presented as being a reformed prostitute, is someone to look to in times of distress and difficulty because the people he was speaking to, the Christians he was speaking to at that time, were going through the turmoil of the Roman Empire falling apart, famine, disease, difficulties, everything was completely uh, coming unraveled in the Roman Empire. And Gregory said, look to Mary Magdalene and her example. In the darkest hour, she remained faithful. So he holds her up as someone to follow. This is hardly an attempt to eradicate Mary Magdalene's memory or destroy her. Now, I should point out that in the Eastern tradition, these three women in Luke 7 and 8 were always considered to be three distinct women. In the Western tradition, for a long time, they were seen to be one woman for the most part. And when I say tradition here, I mean small t tradition. This is the understanding of many theologians. But the church has acknowledged, after Vatican II, in its uh, new liturgical calendar, that Mary Magdalene is no longer a Reformed prostitute, but is a, a sinner turned saint, and that she is a great saint, and that she is someone worthy of, of our attention and affection. Finally, I want to look at a few claims made about Leonardo da Vinci, which is uh, a very fascinating topic. I mentioned that um, the claims were made in the Da Vinci Code that Leonardo was a flamboyant homosexual. It also says that Leonardo lived most of his life in fear that he would be persecuted and killed by the Vatican. But while he lived in this intense fear, he also managed to accept hundreds of lucrative Vatican commissions, which... You know, I don't want to get into formal and informal logic here, but it seems a little bit confusing. And a number of other things are said about him that are, are rather suspect. Well, none of these claims about Leonardo as a person will, will stand up to any kind of reputable historical research. Leonardo may have been a homosexual. A lot of people may have been a homosexual. It's pure speculation. There's no evidence for it. He certainly didn't live his life in fear. He lived a very public life. He worked for a number of different princes and kings. He did accept exactly one Vatican commission. You know, a few hundred, one. Again, what are numbers among friends? The more serious problem here is the, are the claims made about the Last Supper, one of Leonardo's great paintings. Of course, the Mona Lisa perhaps being his most famous painting. Because this has really captured the imagination, I think, of a lot of people. Uh, combined with the idea that Jesus, Mary, Magdalene were Mary, the idea that depicted in the Last Supper seated to the right of Christ is not the Apostle John, as all those silly art historians and critics have thought all these years. What do they know? It's actually Mary Magdalene, who is the Holy Grail, who, can, who brings the Holy Bloodline down through time. Although keep in mind that Jesus was a mere mortal prophet, so actually his bloodline has no meaning, but we're supposed to go along with it. Well, Dan Brown, uh, in interviews, not just in the novel, but in interviews, in the ABC interview, for example, he explains how the, the, the rigorous scholarship that went into ascertaining that the person seated to the right of Christ is Mary Magdalene. And this is very complex, but just stick with me here. Dan Brown looked at the painting, and he noticed that that person had longer hair. And he said that he noticed that that figure had a hint of a bosom. And it struck him that it was a woman, and he realized it had to be Mary Magdalene. Do you want me to go through it again? <laughs> Because it's very involved. It's very involved. Now, I make, I, I'm obviously being very sarcastic because I think something like this deserves to be 
It deserves some, some kind of sarcastic response. And I liken it to, I, I grew up in the 1980s, and of course I've always listened to classical music, being very cultured, but I've heard that there were these um, rock bands, heavy metal bands, uh, especially out of Los Angeles, and that many of these bands featured singers who had long hair, uh, and these were men, long hair, lipstick, makeup, uh, teased hair, all this stuff. Uh, and you know, if you watch some of their videos, so I'm told, again, uh, being, being immersed in Beethoven and Bach, um, because as you know, uh, Western Montana, where I grew up, is, is kind of a cultural center for classical music. Um, <laughs> or is it country music? I forget. If you saw one of these music videos in the, just the right frame, if they froze it, you'd say, that's, that looks like a woman. That's, that's actually an attractive looking woman. But if you continue to watch, you'd say, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I liken it to that kind of absurdity. I really think it's at that level, that what's going on here. What makes this even more ridiculous is the fact that Brown has claimed again and again that he spent a year researching this, even though we show in our book that all of his claims about Leonardo and Leonardo's artwork are taken from, taken from a book called The Templar Revelation, sometimes the same verbiage and phraseology used, and that Brown says that his wife is an art historian and that she helped him with the research. And, and by the way, he also says that in the very opening flap, if you've not seen the Da Vinci Code, there's a fact page where he states that all descriptions of artwork, architecture, Secret rituals and documents are completely accurate in this book. Kind of an unusual move for a novel, but he says that. But if his wife is an art historian, why did she not point out to him that it was common in the Florentine era of the late 1400s, early 1500s that Leonardo painted in? It was common to depict young men in their teens and early 20s in a very effeminate manner. And there's both cultural and theological ideas behind this. It's to accentuate the immaturity of the person uh, in relation to someone who is a teacher or master. In The Last Supper, of course, it's teacher. The teacher is Christ and the student is John. And John is the disciple beloved by Christ, right? The, 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 the beloved uh, disciple of Christ who rests on his chest uh, in that, uh, that evening before Christ is betrayed. When you actually look at The Last Supper, it's an incredible work of theological symbolism. And we talk about some of this the Da Vinci hoax, and we uh, rely upon the work of Leo Steinberg, who is a brilliant art critic who wrote a, this huge coffee table book called Leonardo's Incessant Last Supper, a just incredible work of scholarship. And what he says is that when you looked at the three people to the right of Christ, you have the Apostle John, Judas, and the Apostle Peter, St. Peter. Why these three men? Because they are the three who play the most central role in Christ's passion, right? John is the only one who goes to the foot of the cross. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him, but then is later, later confesses, uh, is reinstated in a sense by Christ at the end of John's gospel as, as the head apostle. These three men are the primary male figures in Christ's passion. And so the, the art depicts John in a state of contemplation. He's almost in prayer, if you look at it. He's, in fact, his hands are kind of clasped and his eyes are closed. Well, why is that? Because John's gospel has always been understood to be the most mystical, the most theological, the most contemplative of all four of the gospels. And John has sometimes been called the contemplative apostle. 
Judas is recoiling from Christ because Leonardo depicts the moment when Christ says, one among you is going to betray me. So Judas is pulling away from Christ and grabbing at the money bag, of course, which he was given to betray Christ. Peter is lunging toward Christ as if to say, what did he just state? Did I hear him right? And he's holding a knife in his hand. Why? Perhaps the steak was very tough that night, but more likely, more likely because it prefigures what was going to happen in the garden later, right? Where Peter would take the sword and chop off the ear of one of the attendants to the guards who come to arrest Christ. And there's much, much more to it, but that just gives you a sense of what Leonardo infused into this incredible painting, one of the great masterpieces in Western civilization. None of this, of course, is really discussed in the Da Vinci Code because the fixation is on this must be Mary Magdalene seated to the right of Christ. Now, let's just assume for a second, for the sake of argument, that it is a woman seated to the right of Christ. A couple things then come to mind. If it is a woman, what is the Apostle John doing? What are you doing, John? Getting more pizza, perhaps? We don't know. <laughs> or as my co-author, Sanamisa, likes to point out, if it is a woman, why do we have to assume that it's Mary Magdalene? Why wouldn't it be Mary, the mother of Jesus? After all, she had, I've heard she had some role to play in his life. Uh, apparently significant to some degree. And why must we assume that Mary Magdalene is some really drop-dead gorgeous 25-year-old model. Why are all of these things assumed? Because they make the conspiracy theories and the sensationalizing so much more rewarding. It doesn't work unless you have to find all of these connections that really don't exist. There's many evidences that the person of the right of Christ is, is uh, the Apostle John, one of them being that Leonardo's own sketchbooks show this very clearly in many different ways, uh, the historical record, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I mentioned that this is taken from the Templar Revelation, written by two British occultists, who, by the way, also wrote a book about the Shroud of Turin, in which they claimed that the Shroud of Turin was a photograph taken by Leonardo da Vinci of himself using alchemic methods, uh, a theory that has not yet been embraced by scientists who have studied the Shroud of Turin, but it's out there. The, the point is that in the Templar Revelation, it says that this is Mary Magdalene, but in Holy Blood, Holy Grail, Dan Brown's other main source for his novel, we get the truth, finally. It's not the Apostle John. It's not Mary Magdalene. It's actually Jesus' half-brother, Jude Mark, just so you know, okay? <laughs> so if somebody asks you, just proving that there's so many different conspiracy theories, all of them lacking any kind of evidence. Well, there are a number of different claims that we could go through, and perhaps you have some questions about some of those that I've not covered, and I'd try to answer those later. But I want to conclude with a few thoughts about why is this novel so popular? Why is it so popular? Now, if I could give a really easy answer to that, I could be wealthy. Uh, and I've attempted to be wealthy by writing my own book about the Da Vinci Code, but if I could figure out what makes a bestseller, it could be very wealthy indeed. It's difficult to sometimes figure out why these things connect at a certain time. A lot of it is timing. A lot of it is the, the cultural sense of where we're at as a society. If this book had been written 30 years ago, I think nobody pays attention to it. It came out at the right time. On one level, it's an exciting thriller for many people. In fact, I had an argument with a good friend of mine. He said, it really is a page turner. I said, it, it is a page turner. I said, it's very poorly written. He said, wait, wait, wait. How can it be a page turner and be poorly written? 
I said, easy, I have two words for you, soap opera, <laughs> soap opera. Now again, I've not watched soap operas. <laughs> I only watch PBS. Um, but soap operas, as you probably know, even if you've not really watched them, are poorly acted usually, poorly written, poorly directed, and yet they are incredibly popular, right? Why? Because they, they appeal, I think, to the, our baser nature. They're sensationalistic, they're over the top, they touch on all kinds of titillating topics. It's about adultery and this and that and so forth. That essentially, to me, is what the Da Vinci Code is on one level. But going beneath that, I think part of the, the interest, part of the obsession that some people have with this is that they think by reading the Da Vinci Code they find out the truth about so many things, especially the origins of Christianity, especially the truth about Jesus and Mary Magdalene and how rotten Christianity is. It reinforces for some readers the antagonism or the dislike they already have against Christianity and the way that they perceive Christianity to be. And there's, so there's a distrust of authority. When you think of authority in the world, especially if you think of religious authority, what, is, what comes to mind on a global scale? It's, it's the papacy, which of course is a, a symbol for the Catholic Church. This dislike for religious authority can be found throughout the Da Vinci Code because the, the novel basically says, you are your own authority, you are the one who creates your own truth, and I think that gets to the heart of what has made this novel so popular, is that it essentially says in various ways, in narrative and in, in dialogue, that each of us needs to be freed from dogma, from doctrine, from narrow-mindedness, and embrace a spirituality that is all about me, which might involve worshiping myself. I've always thought it curious that if everyone is God, as certain you know, New Agers say, if everyone is God and that we just need to realize we're God, how smart can God be if he doesn't know he's God? I'm just wondering. <laughs> and let's say that God had a, his self-esteem failed him and, and he stopped believing in himself. Would he be an atheist? I'm just wondering. <laughs> These are questions for another talk, but the point is that the, the novel says you can create your own spirituality. Now, the novel does recommend a spirituality based around goddess worship, reclaiming the sacred feminine. And one of the claims of the novel is that ancient societies, which were totally peaceful and had no problems whatsoever, were all about worshiping goddesses. This is a complete myth, by the way, and that has been shown to be false in many different ways. The history of Christianity is far, far more complex than that. And there really has never been a time in human history where there hasn't been problems. Where two or three are gathered, there are problems. <laughs> but there's this appeal to the individualistic impulses that we have. That we can achieve some kind of divinity, some kind of godhood, some kind of enlightenment. Frank Peretti, a, a great evangelical writer, once noted in a talk that it's interesting how in the New Age movement, everybody gets to be a god or goddess, realizing their god consciousness, their Christ consciousness, etc. Everybody except Jesus. He remains safely tucked away in history, a mere man. The nice thing about that is if he's just a mere mortal prophet, he has nothing to say to me today. He can make no claim on me. He cannot stand before me and say, choose me or deny me. Those are the options. He just becomes safely pushed to the, to the background. I've heard from uh, various fans of the book that 
I'm far too dogmatic in my take of the novel that really it's all about seeking, not believing. Have you ever met people who say this? No, I'm a seeker, not a believer. Let's be utterly frank here. If you are a seeker and you don't think there's anything worth believing, you're being a fool. Because what is the point of seeking? To find something, to know, to believe. And yet I find so many people who are enamored with, I'm seeking, which I think in many cases is a fancy way of saying, I don't want to make a commitment. I don't want to actually have to choose how I will live my life. I want to keep all my options open. And the fact is, if you keep all your options open, there are no options that you're choosing, which means you're not really doing anything. In the end, I've described the Da Vinci Code as a postmodern myth, meaning it's a fancy way of saying it's about creating your own reality, creating your own spirituality, rewriting history, if that's what's required, so that you can justify the choices that you make today. And with that, I want to conclude with this quote from Francis Cardinal George, who was the Archbishop of Chicago, who kindly wrote the foreword to our book. And in this foreword, he says, he touches on some of those aspects of the Da Vinci Code. This is what he says. There have been many such writings as the Da Vinci Code before, and no doubt there will be again. So why single out this novel? I read it because so many people who read it keep asking me questions about it. It has had a remarkably large and credulous readership, reminding me of the dictum that those who have lost or don't know the faith are likely to believe anything. It matters what we read, what films and television programs we watch. If we feed our minds on error, we risk losing touch with the truth about who we are and how we ought to live. We find salvation through self-surrender in Christ, not from personal ideas or inspirations. Once the anchor of the church's authentic witness and teaching is abandoned, Gnosticism or other false theories inevitably appear. Antagonism to the church and her teaching ultimately entails some kind of rejection of Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in history. His truth is always a challenge to every egocentric vision of, re of reality and to an unbounded will for human autonomy. Besides, does anyone really think that all of those martyrs went to their deaths to protect the secret that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Thank you. I think we're gonna open it up right for, for questions, is that correct? Okay, um, so I guess if you have a question, come up to the microphone. Don't be, don't be shy or, or afraid. This tape is being sent to the Vatican, and it will, be, <laughs> it will be played in their secret underground basement. But don't let that deter you. Carl, I've got a question. Oh, hi, Chris. Yes, thank you. Um, you referred to how uh, radical feminists um, and Dan Brown used the Gnostic Gospels. Just for the audience, could refer to the, the most famous of them is the Gospel of Thomas. And how does the Gospel of Thomas? He was just telling me how great I did. Okay. <laughs> Again, how great you are, Carl. What I was talking about, the, the Gnostic Gospels are used by Dan Brown and radical feminists. Uh, the most famous of them is the Gospel of Thomas. Can you refer to for the audience, the closing of the Gospel of Thomas, used by radical feminists and Dan Brown in the promotion of sacred femininity. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. 
the, the Gospel of Thomas, again, is the Gnostic text that's received the most attention um, of all the different Gnostic texts. In fact, if you go to a major bookstore, you'll probably find three, four, five, six books about the Gospel of Thomas or commentary on the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy about when it was written, most likely mid-2nd century to 3rd century. But what Chris is referring to is that many radical feminists, including like Margaret Starbird, will say that the Gnostic Gospels or writings are extremely pro-woman, pro-feminine, and that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all about antagonism to women, putting women down, etc. But when you read the very end of the Gospel of Thomas, you have this very interesting exchange between Jesus and his disciples. Because his disciples come to him and they have this question, this very pressing question, this very pro-feminist question. Jesus, how are women going to get into heaven since they're women? And Jesus says, not to worry. They will be changed into men prior to entering heaven. <laughs> so, uh, kind of puts a little bit of a kink into that notion. And it's worth pointing out that someone who is something of a feminist, I know it's kind of a vague term, but is also a scholar, Helene Pagels, in her book, The Gnostic Gospels, which really introduced many of these works to a larger popular audience back in the 1970s, she has acknowledged that it's very, very incorrect to say the Gnostics were very pro-woman and the Christians were very anti-woman. She says, actually, it's far more complex than that, and that many of the Gnostic texts are extremely derogatory towards women, basically saying women are secondary beings, whereas I would argue that throughout the history of the Christian church, although there have certainly been different people who have said bad things about either women or about sexuality or whatever, that overall Christianity has been the most pro-feminine religion to ever be on earth, very pro-woman. And one example of that is the high esteem that we, we hold Mary, the mother of Jesus in. And there's many other examples, including Mary Magdalene, which I've already talked about. So uh, that's kind of what he was referring to and, and the fact that this is a far more complex uh, issue when it comes to Gnosticism and, and women than sometimes is presented in the more popular, uh, popular works. So, um, other questions? Have I bludgeoned you into sub submission? Here comes, here comes somebody. Because I have another hour, I can just. <laughs> if you have questions, please come on up again. Yes, sir. Could you address uh, a couple of the things that uh, this Dan Brown says in on the fact page? He mentions the organization Opus Dei. Yes. Um, could you say what that is and um, who belongs to that organization? Also, he makes the claim that they built a relatively new building in New York for $45 million. Yep. And also, could you um, explain what the Priory of Scion is okay. and whether that organization, uh, whether Leonardo da Vinci belonged to that or Isaac Newton, and what the purpose of that organization was? Okay. I'll start with the second question first um, regarding the Priory of Zion. On the fact page, the beginning of the novel, uh, it states, the Priory of Zion, a European secret society founded in 1099, is a real organization. Well, it depends how we define real. Um, I define real as actually having existed, so no, this is not true. 
The Priory of Zion is an elaborate hoax that has been exposed many times over. The Priory of Zion was actually established in the 1950s in France by a man named Pierre Plantard, who decided that to further his political ambitions, he was going to create this mythology using forged documents that he salted into various libraries and museums, especially libraries in France, that he and his friends discovered that stated that he was actually a descendant of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and had a rightful claim to the throne of Europe. Now, you got to admire the ambition. It didn't really work out that way for him. He, in fact, went through all kinds of legal problems and in the 1990s, under oath, had to acknowledge that this was a complete elaborate hoax. The BBC did a lengthy journalistic series exposing this as a hoax. A French newspaper did the same thing. I mean, it's been exposed as a hoax several times over. And this date of 1099 is, is completely false. That, and Leonardo da Vinci did not belong to this organization. It didn't exist. Isaac Newton didn't belong to it. Uh, so that's part of the, the, the facts behind the Priory of Zion. And we have a, a chapter in our book about that written by uh, my co-author. Uh, the second question about Opus Dei. It does say here that Opus Dei, um, it says that it's a devout, deeply devout Catholic sect that has been the topic of recent controversy to, due to reports of brainwashing, coercion, and dangerous practice known as corporal mortification. And it says the Opus Dei has just completed construction of a $47 million national headquarters in New York City. The latter part is true. Opus Dei did, did build a new headquarters in New York City. Um, it is not a sect in the strict sense of the word. Uh, neither is it really a religious order. It's known as a personal prelatcher. Uh, which essentially means that Opus Dei, although Opus Dei answers to bishops, it has a kind of unique relationship with the Pope and it's um, how it is identified and seen with, uh, within the Catholic Church. And Opus Dei, and in fact I'm going to ask uh, Father, who is more familiar with Opus Dei, to talk about it in a second, but Opus Dei essentially is about calling lay people to a radical life of holiness in the world and it was founded by um, Jose Maria Escriva, whose name I always butcher, I hope I got it right, who was a priest in Mexico for many, many years in the early 20th century, who really thought that the laity needed to have a different, not a different place within the church, but there needed to be a renewed understanding of how the laity work with the ordained priesthood, with the religious, in proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the world, especially out in the real world, in the workplace, and in, in other places uh, outside of the church. So I know the Father here has some background with Opus Dei, and I want to ask him if he would add a couple things from his own experience, which is, is more than I have with Besides, if I say anything incorrect about Opus Dei, they have assassins who go out and... <laughs> and um, I'll just say before I start, I am not an albino monk. Uh, I've never seen one. You know, I, I uh, was in school in St. Louis, and my spiritual director there was a priest of Opus Dei. And so I would go to see him at the center of Opus Dei, the place where the priests live where the lay people involved in Opus Dei would come for classes and whatnot. And frequently I would ring the doorbell and he'd come and I'd say, yes, I'm here to speak with the albino monk. <laughs> and they would laugh because there is no such thing. Um, Opus Dei, as uh, Carl said, is an organization founded by St. Jose Maria Esprima. Uh, and his vision uh, was that uh, the laity would truly live their call to holiness. Opus Dei is a means 
for people to realize that in their own lives. Uh, St. Jose Maria taught, as does the church in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, that everyone is called to be a saint in the midst of their daily work. You don't have to be a priest or a nun in order to be holy. So his vision was that everyone, the laity especially, uh, Opus Dei is mostly made up of lay people, ordinary people who have ordinary jobs, who are seeking to live a holy life. Uh, and that's all that Opus Dei is. It's not some sort of secretive organization. Uh, it is not uh, full of people being brainwashed and, and forced to do all sorts of things. My experience of them is that they are ordinary people who love the Lord and who want to do His will in their lives. All right. Any other questions on Opus Dei? Could you, could you mention, Father, there, there is the, some of the practices that are said that uh, Opus Dei members are encouraged or allowed to use as spiritual mortification? Correct. Yeah. Uh, one of the practices of Opus Dei, as you know, the universal church, is corporal mortification. Uh, in the book, the, uh, the Da Vinci Code, it's depicted as bloody scourging and wearing spiked chains that draw blood. Uh, you know, I asked my spiritual director about these things. I said, okay, what's the deal with this? Is this true? And his response was, if you're bleeding, you're doing it wrong. Okay? <laughs> it's not what it's made out to be. Huh? It is uh, the, the specific practices that they have, what's called the discipline, which is a knotted cord that you use to inflict something similar to the scourging of Christ. It's to remind us of that. And the other thing is a psyllis, which is a spike chain worn around the leg for two hours a day. Okay? These are means to remind us of the suffering that Christ endured in his life. Huh? The church tells us that everybody is called to practice corporal mortification. Maybe not in that way, but in different ways. Right? We're in Lent, fasting and abstaining from meat. Those are corporal mortifications. They are physical penances that we do. Huh? One of the, uh, a book I recently read on Opus Dei, uh, a member of Opus Dei was asked about this, and he said, you know, I do more corporal mortification at the gym, running on the treadmill, than I do uh, using the discipline or wearing the silks. Uh, so we're all called to corporal mortification, and what's practiced in Opus Dei has been practiced by saints throughout the centuries. It's nothing new to the church, all right? A little controversial, but, but you, uh, within, within what the church teaches. And I think this last point is an excellent one because we live in a society that really has disconnected in many ways the spiritual reality from the physical reality. And so this idea that you would actually do physical things in order to become more spiritually uh, vibrant, more spiritually alive, to have a, a closer uh, communion with the Lord is something that most people just, it, it seems strange to them. And yet people will, as Father intimated, people will go to the gym for two hours a day and inflict pain on themselves, I know it's painful for me, in order to what? To look better, to feel better? I mean, these are not, it's not a bad thing. Some people do it for wrong reasons, right? And same thing, sometimes uh, spiritual exercises can be used incorrectly as well. Um, but, but the abuse of something does not mean that the original idea is, is uh, incorrect in itself. Um, other questions at all? Yes, thank you. I teach fifth grade here at Cathedral School, and one of my students came up to me yesterday and asked me, she said she'd been watching a TV show on the, the History Channel, and that it had said that Mary Magdalene was married to Jesus. How do we deal with that? And how do we deal with adults that have similar 
inquiries? Yeah, good question. How do we address these, these various errors? And, you know, obviously, one of the things I try to do is give talks like this to at least get people to think about the facts behind that. Um, she may have been referring to the History Channel's piece where they look at, they look at the claim that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Um, I don't know that they actually assert it, although they give it so much time, you could be, understand why somebody would think this is actually what they're promoting. Um, I think one of the questions that I have for people who are really enamored with the idea that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married is, is why is this so important to you, especially considering the fact that there is no evidence for it and there's evidence apart from it. One of the things I didn't mention, by the way, is that when you look at biblical scholarship across the board from what we might call conservative to liberal, you will not find any kind of respected biblical scholar in the world who teaches that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Not even the Jesus Seminar, which raised a lot of controversy because some of its approaches to scripture ever said that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. In fact, John Dominic Crossan, who was a member of the Jesus Seminar, and who in one of his early books stated that Jesus' body, after being taken down from the cross, was eaten by dogs in the street, which you know is not in the creed, right? <laughs> John Dominic Crossan, when asked in an interview by beliefnet.com, do you think that Jesus was married? He laughed. He said, that's ridiculous. There is no evidence for it, he said. No biblical scholar thinks that. So the question I have is, why are people so enamored with this? I mean, I've made the joke, and it's only a half joke, that, that Hollywood and our society in general, in some ways, mocks marriage, thinks marriage is boring, old-fashioned, stick in the mud, right? Except if Jesus was married. Now, that's exciting. But why? And one of the answers that's given sometimes, is it makes Jesus more human. I've actually heard this answer more than once. It makes Jesus more human. To which I respond, so if you're not married, you're not really human? <laughs> There's a lot of people in the world who aren't married. This is rather offensive. Uh, I, I think it's, there's a, a titillation to it, and not, not a titillation on the, in the sexual sense, but in the sense that I'm believing something that is you know, considered dangerous or out there or different. And my response is, you're, just, you're believing something that's not true. And really, you should be interested in believing what is true. You know, Sandra, my co-author, has said more than once on television programs and stuff, she said, if I were an atheist, I would still be offended and I would despise the Da Vinci Code as an historian. It's an offense to fact, to historical record. And so I think those are some of the approaches, you know, and find out why is it that people are enamored with that, and then say, why would you want to believe something that there's no evidence for? And then why wouldn't you be interested in what the church says about Jesus, especially Jesus' relationship to the church, his bride, with all of the different theological nuances and ramifications of that great truth, which is found in scripture and is found throughout the history of the church's teaching. So uh, that's part of what, uh, what I might say uh, about that. Uh, any more questions? I know coming up to, okay, great, thanks. Thank you. I guess I have a question. Um, what would you say to children who have um, uh, junior high age, high school age, who've read the Da Vinci Code, um, don't believe it, tell me that it's a work of fiction, and have read books dispelling um, the hoax of the Da Vinci Code, and yet still tell me they want to go see the movie. Oh. And it, it offends me, and I tell, try to explain to them why, and they're still saying, but it's just fiction. Why do adults get so uptight? Yeah, great question. I think this gets to a, a, deeper, a deeper question, which you kind of hint at, and that is, 
one of the things I hear people say is, well, I know it's not true, but it's very entertaining. And my question is, then why do we find it, why do we find certain things entertaining? What does it mean to be entertained, right? I think we have this very glib, what's entertaining, I enjoyed watching it. But we oftentimes don't say to ourselves, why did I find myself watching that? And you know, I've asked myself that many times after watching episodes of, of television shows or movies where I think, you know, why did I sit through two hours of that when really it was garbage? And I think it, in part, it does appeal to our, our, our lesser natures. It does appeal to that part of us that is weak, that is sinful. Um, but I think we oftentimes just are able to, we, we take in entertainment, what we call entertainment, novels, movies, television, and we, we shut off our critical faculties, right? Oh, I just want to veg. I just want to watch TV for a couple hours. And so this stuff comes in, and it's not even processed. And so I think there's a danger there. I think in terms of the movie, uh, I'm, I'm not, by the way, I'm not for boy, boycotting the Da Vinci Code movie, but I would say I don't think anybody should bother to go see it. Why would, now, I have to confess, I am going to see it, so I'm a hypocrite, okay. My, my confessor already knows that, but <laughs> I have to see it because one of the things I'm going to be doing is trying to rebut it and speak to how it relates to the novel and, and how it's portrayed and, and all that. But why, do we, why would we want to spend money and time on a form of entertainment that is not only factually incorrect, but actually attacks things that we hold dear? I mean, why would a Catholic want to give money to somebody who's basically attacking what we believe? I don't, you know, I don't understand that. Now, I understand the motivation can be different, such as I want to know what they're saying so I can reply to it. I want to be able to dialogue or talk with my friends who are going to watch it, and I want to be able to say, hey, I saw that movie, and here are the problems with it. That might be a legitimate reason to see it. But in terms of, oh, I just want to go have a fun time and be entertained, even though I think it's false or it's not true, personally, I just don't understand why we'd want to do that. And uh, I think this is something we need to challenge ourselves as Christians, is always, why do I find certain things entertaining? What is it that appeals to me? Is it something that shouldn't appeal to me? Is it appealing to a part of me that actually is, is bad? That I'm allowing uh, things into my mind, into my heart, that I really shouldn't be. So I think those are maybe some of the things that I would say in, re in response uh, to that. Uh, one question here. I'll probably take one or two more questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Hi. Um, I have not read the book, but I sense a very strong anti-Catholic flavor to it. Could you comment on that as to why so many Catholics are attracted to something that's against their faith? Great question, and I've, I've touched on a little bit of that, but why would a, a Catholic or why would a Christian be attracted to a novel that attacks? I. The one reason I can come up with is I think that many, hearkening back to what I already said, many people when they read this novel, I think they miss, I think they miss a lot of it. I think that many of us have become tone deaf to how our culture attacks Christianity. And I don't say that saying that we should be running around being paranoid or conspiratorial and thinking, you know, what do they mean by that? But when it's so blatant as when the novel repeatedly says that Christianity is a lie and that if you're a Catholic, you're basically, a, you're being fooled and duped. I mean, that's pretty overt, right? I mean, I don't think there's any subtlety to that. And it repeats those kind of things again and again. I think it's because many Catholics, many Christians, that I think has really been a problem in the Catholic Church for some three or four decades, are very poorly catechized. 
they continue to be Catholic perhaps because that's the way they were raised, because this is what their parents did. They like maybe the ritual, they like maybe the symbolism, or they think that's, you know, this they do believe to some degree, but they don't really understand what goes into it. And they don't, so therefore they don't understand when it's being attacked because they don't understand their faith well enough to even see what is being uh, jumped on, what is being hit at. So I think that's one of the problems that, that happens. And I think many of us, being human, are motivated oftentimes more by emotion than by clarity of thought, by objectivity. And so we think, well, it was fun to read, so it must have been good. It was kind of a thrilling read, so I enjoyed it. Again, missing the things that are being said uh, in, in the novel. Uh, it does perplex me, and I because mean, I've seen many times Catholics, probably half a dozen times on the internet, and this one woman that I, I mentioned who said, well, I thought it was a wonderful book, presented us with a very human Jesus. What's the problem? Consider if a book was written about Judaism, a novel about Judaism, about how Judaism uh, created this mythology called the Holocaust, and that the Holocaust never happened, and that this was created by a small group of Jewish men who wanted to further their power and their leverage on the global scene by creating this mythology of the Holocaust. Imagine that that kind of novel was written, and it was out there. Now, would the New York Times say how wonderful it was? Would, would, would Jewish people run around saying, how, oh, it's a great novel? Would they? Of course not. Or say that a book about how Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad of, of the Muslim faith, that he was actually a closeted homosexual. And the only reason he married so many women was to cover it up. And he, you know, he hurt small animals. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you know, can you imagine? I mean, we've seen the furor that's been ignited across the world in the last few weeks because of some cartoons. Christianity, Christians, I find sometimes are extremely passive in the face of being attacked. Sometimes it's, it's a passiveness that does come, I think, out of a Christian spirit of, I'm not going to strike back. But sometimes I think that we do have to respond and we have to say, wait a second, you know what? I'm offended by what you've said. You're insulting my faith. You're insulting what I believe. Why would you do that? I think that more and more of us have to be willing to do that and do it in a spirit of charity, of kindness, of wanting to see people that this is just not a right the right way to approach a faith, to approach a religion. Um, so that's what I would, I would say about that. Any more questions? Yes, sir. One, this last question here, and then we'll, we'll finish uh, for the evening. I really don't have a question. I just want to thank you for your presentation this evening, because what it's done for me, it's clarified some things, and I'll just keep reading my Bible to find out how I can better serve the Lord and my fellow men, and I don't need to read a Da Vinci Code, such as a fictional story as it may be, it's not something I want. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I think that was a fitting, a very fitting remark to conclude this uh, time here, and I'll be happy to come out there and to sign copies. Uh, of books, and I want to thank you for having me here this evening and for your attention. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks, thanks again so much.